and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. This week it is the second half of my interview with none other than Chris Packham. You know the guy, likes animals and tells you about it on telly, but then subverted all of that by writing a wonderful memoir about a childhood spent eating live tadpoles, stealing birds' eggs, and one truly haunting encounter with a fox that, spoiler alert, does not end well for the fox. And if you haven't yet read Chris's Fingers in the Sparkle Jar, I recommend you do exactly that. Just please wait about 38-ish minutes before you do so. All that said, if you haven't yet listened to part one, stop right now, stop and go back one episode and you will hear all about Belgian wolf packs, about the new forest, about Chris's thoughts on non-violent versus violent protest and how his parenting skills involve putting wasps on his stepdaughter Megan's nose and then making her dissect roadkill. But if you've already heard part one, then you're back here for a reason. So sit back and relax and imagine you're in Hampshire's new forest. You've Chris Packham to the left of you, me to your right, and you're mere moments from being pleasantly reminded of the truest of countryside truisms. The badgers will find a way. Enjoy the episode. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Wood ants, look. Wood ant nest. Yeah, so... They love the pine. Is that Yeah, they do, yeah. But they basically, these have been dug out by the badgers, and they they do it every winter. Look, they've destroyed this one here. And wood ants are, uh, you know, uh, as a group, are in in decline. They are. Yeah, and um, so there was, within the wood here, there were three little groups. This is one little clump here, and there's a couple more about 50 metres further on. North of us, where we are, there's another clump of wood ants' nests which aren't disturbed by the badgers. I've thought about putting, like, winter fences around these, just to keep the badgers out. The badgers would find a way. Yeah, of course. You know badgers. Yeah, I know, yeah. Did you do your PhD, your aborted PhD in badgers? I did, Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. What was your attempted subject? Well, I was looking at two groups of badgers, one in the New Forest and one in the Itchen Valley, and, and, and looking at the, at the way that food uh, impacted on their social dynamics. And there was a very clear difference, so it was quite interesting. This was back in the 80s, you know, at, at that point. Why did you go for badgers when you were, based on your memoirs, obsessed with kestrels and well, otters? And... Well, I was on a badger set one day, and, and, I, and I had learned about their latrines, and then someone had been feeding... I think it was hyenas, marked food, feeding them food with little bits of plastic in it, which could be recovered in the faeces. So I, I got some fertiliser bags and diligently washed them. And then I um, got a hole punch and I punched many hundreds of the little discs. And I used molasses to glue them to peanuts. <laughs> and I fed them to three different badger sets. And then I found their latrines and I could see which badgers were marking which latrines so again you know I was more driven by the science than the subject uh-huh. basically finding out new things you know I just sort of boundless curiosity so I ended up yeah I was obsessed with birds but I ended up looking at um, shrews and badgers for most of my teenage years really why did you stop doing your PhD because I I was worried about 
my mental attitude at the time. My peers were, and no, sorry, my mentors were, were struggling to get funding for the projects they wanted to do, and they were, you know, filling in forms for grants all the time. And I just, that's not me, you know. I get easily frustrated by that sort of bureaucracy. Uh, Is that not the same about television production, though? It's still about sourcing the money to make your. Yeah, but I did run a, a, a little indie for a while, but I started to sort of need to become a businessman and I'm not one so I got out of that pretty quickly um, it was successful but I, I recognized that it wasn't me so I don't do that any longer you know I will you know come up with ideas pitch them to broadcasters work with indies to develop those ideas and mm -hmm. then you know and then work on them but I don't, I don't want to be involved with the business side of it again is there anything you particularly want to do next have you got an idea do you know, I don't manifest those sorts of ambitions in that sense. Uh, if I have an overreaching um, ambition, as I've said, it's just to make some small difference before my time runs out, you mm -hmm. know. And um, I mean, there are a few ideas that I have for TV programmes at the moment that I'm sort of touting around because I, I think it, they'd be worth making, they'd be valuable. I've got a vocational interest in the content. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I've never... I'm, I'm not really, I'm not a relaxed, laid-back, go-with-the-flow sort of bloke, but at the same time, I don't have precise ambitions. I think I've learned that having expectations is a dangerous thing because they invariably get let down. So I try not to generate too many expectations of things happening, really. I guess then, you recently took the government to court for eight, to try and stop HS2. How does going into something as substantial, costly and potentially doomed to failure correlate alongside your fear of bad expectations well that must have been fairly trepidatious yeah but i mean you, you don't pick fights because you think you can win them you pick fights because they're the right fights to pick i know a lot of people who would say that you should only pick fights that you could win otherwise you're going to no, end up on your bottom no. i mean in those sorts of situations you could argue i mean we had a good chance of winning otherwise my lawyers would never have taken sure. the case their reputation and their very ethos underpins the fact that they you, you simply ethically and morally can't pursue that sort of thing unless there's a chance that you will win mm -hmm. um in fact you know the judgment against us was was pretty farcical so i would argue that we ought to have won yes i we, would too but we did in, in, in a way that, you know, the debate about HS2 rages on many fronts, environmental, economic, social, so on and so forth. And I, I, part of running that campaign was to keep that issue in the public eye from the environmental point of view. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, again, it's tough, you know, trying to get news space, trying to get into people's lives and explain to them why, yes, we need sustainable rail, sustainable transport, but this project wasn't satisfying as best as possible those objectives and it was enormously and is enormously environmentally damaging mm -hmm. making a noise about it is sometimes you know is winning in itself yes is winning in itself exactly yeah winning i don't think you know it was a dale carnegie said winning isn't everything but it's the only thing that counts and I, I tried to live by that mantra but it didn't work and now i live by the mantra that winning is not giving up Sure. It's not about crossing the line, getting the cup medal. It's about just keeping going, even when things are really, really tough. You know, you do essentially, you know, in a, from a legal perspective, lose your appeal to get a judicial review into HS2. But look at what's happened subsequently. Oh, that. yeah, they've cut off various legs <laughs> exactly. up north. It's there was talk apart. about it ending in West London. Yeah. 
It's already going. They think it's going to be delayed between five and nine years or oh, something, and it's, it's already cost up 153 to 153 yeah. billion. So I mean, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but you know. Oh, they all know, though. They all know. Oh, it's just an enormous scam to get money out of the public first into private pockets, yeah. and there's, an, you know, it's riven with all sorts of corruption. And a nice bit of land grab in Houston to be. Oh. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I grew up as a kid watching the Really Wild Show. So I'm, I was born in the 80s, early 80s. And so that's when I was first exposed to you, as if you were uranium. What was the audition process like, and why did you want to put yourself on television? I had no... There's nobody of a sound mind no, that wanted to be on television. No, no. Um, but people have an, a, a young, empty pocket, Mike, and sure. that was the situation. So I'd started work as a cameraman, and I was beginning to um, get a few overseas jobs. And I had a significant one cancelled because I, I wasn't inoculated against um, hepatitis. It was in bat caves, <laughs> and there was a risk of the disease. And I had, I'd never had any... And you any... couldn't get vaccinated quickly? No, in those days you had to have a vaccination that was three months apart. Uh. So the process has changed. Um, do you regret not seeing the bats? Do you wonder what would have oh, happened? Oh, I've been and seen them subsequently. And it was amazing. I wished, I had the, I wished I'd gone to film them. So, yeah, I, I like bats very much. And I was at a bat roost a little while ago and four million bats in it. And when they came out, we were in a sweaty jungle. And when they came out, it generated a, an updraft, which was like air conditioning. <laughs> there were so many bats swirling that not only could you hear them, see them and smell them, and in fact they landed all over you so you could feel them, mm -hmm. but they generated a, a breeze. Um, and that was like, wow, I can't tell you how excited I was. <laughs> I was sort of bouncing around with that. But anyway, I didn't, um, the job went away. I met someone, they told me about the Really Wild Show. I spoke to my sister, I was walking to buy, I think it was in Psycho Candy by the Mary Chain one afternoon. And um, I said to her, oh, this job might be available to do some TV presenting. And she stopped in the middle of Hoglands Park. And she said to me, Chris, you've bored us talking about wildlife for the last 20 years. Now go and bore the nation. <laughs> and um, the, the audition process had passed and they'd already cast Nick Davies and Terry Nutkins. Uh -huh. But I kind of sort of um, bullishly demanded an audition. And uh, they relented and gave me one. And um, it was suitably you know, chaotic, abstract, and anarchic. Uh -huh. And they, um, they liked it. Well, I don't know, but they, uh, <laughs> they, they said we'll get, they said we'll get back to you. Anyway, so I went off and um, I was absolutely skinned. I had absolutely no money. And, um, uh, Still living in Southampton at the time. Yeah, I was living in Southampton and every Thursday we'd get the exchange in Mart. And for some bizarre reason, I, I don't ask me to justify it now, it's a long time ago, I decided I wanted an Aston Martin, a classic Aston Martin motor car. And every, yeah, yeah, and every 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 Thursday I looked at the Stanger Mart and the prices were going up and, and I just sort of thought, well, I'm never going to get one of these if I don't get a move on and start earning some money. And um, anyway, they didn't hear from me. I rang them up and they sort of, you know, sideswiped my call. Anyway, it came to a point, one Thursday I got the Stanger Mart and there'd been another £500 hike in the prices of DB6s. <laughs> And, I, and so I, I spent the last of my dole money on the Friday and I went to Bristol on the train. I walked from the station, I didn't have enough money for a taxi or anything, walked from the station to the BBC and I was able to enter because I was working as a cameraman on a plane that I'd come to see someone else. Sure. I found the Really Wild Show office and I went in. It was a dark afternoon, pouring with rain. No, for some reason, it was, I remember it being really dark in the office. Anyway, I looked in and the then producer of the programme, Mike Bainan, who previously made Animal Magic uh -huh. and who was a tremendous character and, yeah. and very 
imaginative when it came to TV. He was crouching over his desk, pouring some paperwork, and I walked up and I stood in front of him and I said, hello. And I, went, I can't tell you exactly what I said because it involves some bad language. But, <laughs> you can beep it out. Well, yeah, you can beep it out. I said, look, you know, I've got plenty of things to do with my life. Can you stop messing me around and tell me whether I've got this job or not? Because if I haven't, I'm just going to go and get on with them and, and you can get on with your programme. Anyway, he was probably the one person in, in the BBC NHU who would have responded positively to that sort of effrontery. <laughs> and um, he sort of smiled and gave me the job, you know. So I'm forever indebted to Mike for recognising that, you know, my somewhat sort of bullish approach was, was warranted. Did you get the Aston Martin? I did, actually. I bought an Aston Martin. And um, Would you say that most of your television natural history career is therefore underpinned by <laughs> gas-guzzling vintage sports cars? <laughs> yeah, let's not say that. <laughs> it was the 1980s and we didn't know any better. Oh, things were point. different back then, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Quick excuse about that. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm very task-centric and, um, and getting the Aston Martin had become a cast. I'd, it, I'd, I'm obsessive and... It, it had become an obsession and um, you know like everything else the acquisition of one's dreams is always ultimately disappointing oh it's terrifying yeah exactly yeah don't have dreams they'll just yeah yeah so i don't need any more aston martins basically put it that way we always said as kids watching it we always thought that terry nutkins lost his finger to an otter is that correct yeah it's true yeah yeah did that make you jealous (laughs) i did actually in a way yeah Terry had lived with Gavin Maxwell, who was a very famous author, wrote Ring of Bright Water and a succession mm-hmm. of other books. He lived on the west coast of Scotland, in a very remote part of the world. And Terry went to live with him, and um, one of the otters severed his fingers. And uh, he was driven to Inverness Hospital in a Mercedes 300SL Gullwing, which, you know, just harking back to my interest in classic cars, <laughs> um, was quite a, quite, a, quite a vehicle. Runs into millions of pounds now, if you wanted to buy one of those to, uh-huh. take, to use as an ambulance <laughs> and uh, so I think I was probably more envious of the journey to hospital in the 300 SL Goldwing <laughs> and you were in the loss of fingers and I in the loss of fingers yeah did they get the fingers back or did they no just the I mean artists? no it was a long journey from where they were and oh, yeah. um, obviously again that was so when t- Terry must have lost his fingers in the late 50s or very early 60s and uh, there were, obviously there wasn't medical technology to save his fingers You've got a scar from lion cubs on your hand. I've got quite a few scars, actually. Is, what's <laughs> your best wildlife-related injury? At one time I was working with a, a guy I know really well, and they had a, a hand-reared griffon vulture, and I, it was, I was petting it, stroking its fluffy head. And um, we were talking, and I, I forgot to keep stroking it, and rather like a petulant child, it, it pecked. And the, of course, the griffon is armed with a phenomenally strong bill for breaking through the hide of large mammals. And um, the scar's nearly gone now, but you can just about see a bit of it there. Uh-huh. Anyway, it bit into the very bottom of my hand, just where it meets the wrist, and it went right through to the bone. And um, it's really painful. And we were about to start filming that afternoon. Of course, there was an enormous amount of blood going everywhere. However, my host found it hysterical and was just <laughs> cavorting with laughter, you know. And I was sort of jumping around. Um, so initially it really hurt. And um, cause I think because the beat hit the bone. Anyway, I said to him, why, why are you laughing so much? What's so damn funny? This has ruined our day. And he said, well, I saw it flick its head back and swallow the chunk of flesh that it's taken off of your hand. <laughs>
<laughs> so a part of me was eaten by this vulture. And uh, years later, vultures got a long lived. Years later, I took Megan, my stepdaughter, to meet the vulture. Meet vulture. Not close up, no, nowhere near her, but in, in an enclosure. <laughs> we were on the outside. Once bitten, twice shy. <laughs> hey. and, uh, and I said to her, I was very proud to be able to say to her, Megs, I'm part of that vulture. <laughs> you know. But I have to say, all the times that I was bitten, scratched, and stung, it was uh -huh. my fault. I should have been paying attention to the fact that the vulture was humanised and wanted to be petted consistently and constantly. Sure. You mentioned earlier that you're taking time off to go and make some art. Yeah. What kind of thing are you trying to do? Why? How? What do you want it to elicit? Is it going to be public? Is it going to be private? Well, this is going to be some sculpture. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it could, it could well be anything else. I mean, normally I take photos in order to get that sort of creativity out, you know. But for the last couple of years, I've been too busy even to do that. So I normally have a photo project running um, it's very focused, it's very manageable, controllable, uh -huh. um, and I work my way through it and I get a degree of sort of personal satisfaction, you know, exercising that creativity through taking photos. But for the last two years I've been running a project and I've, I've done three shots, one of which I don't like, and it's a series of 12 photos that I want to take. So I've had all the preparation in place, I've, I've, I've had all the ideas, I've done all the sketches, I know the spots, and I just haven't been able to get there. And, and that was sort of breeding more and more... Uh, you know, initially was... <laughs> you know, frustration and then as ultimately resentment. I've always needed to make things, you know. I, I, anyway, then a I, TV show, is the TV show something you make? It is, and, and I've, I've learned to find significant enjoyment working with teams of people who are competent, who manifest skills that I don't have. Uh -huh. And we come together as a team and there's a real synergy and, um, you know, and, and occasionally, you know, given the budget, the time, everything, all, all of the things that can be challenging we make something which we all think is is well something it's good. yeah they think it's good I'm always self-critical and think we can do it better but whatever um, <laughs> but it but it is uh, it's very much a team effort and you know was winter watch good the most recent one was it a good winter watch well the viewers liked it I mean, you know. <laughs> there yeah. you go yeah. um your artwork is it is it going to be figurative or are you going to make sculptures no it's so I'm, I'm into brutalism at the moment okay you know my art fads come and go for those that don't know what brutalism is please could you sum so, up okay up? so I, I, you know i suppose it's sort of post-war think of the barbican post-war big lumps of concrete mm -hmm. bit bright you know bold um the barbican has some nesting peregrines in it yeah superb isn't it yeah 19 pairs in the city now in in, in london Actually, that's amazing. Lots of pigeons. Yeah, plenty of pigeons, of course. Yeah, and the river, which is always good mm -hmm. for trafficking other birds up and down. So, I, I'm yeah, into... The, oh, yeah, I'm into... And I'd always sort of... Oh, I met a sculptor in, in the 80s, and I, you know, have uh, watched him, him working and watched his work evolve and so on and so forth. Not that I'm going to emulate what he does at, at all. He's a genius. And, um, but I, when I left university, I rented some lockups and made some sculpture. Because um, again, I just I'd been stuck in that you know drive to achieve you know at that point sort of academic success you know to get get through everything get top marks on my papers and and I hadn't been reading any literature just mm -hmm. reading scientific journals and, and I hadn't been you know I, I just felt starved of that part of that part of my life you know so I, I got it out of my system then by making a load of sculptures and I thought right well, okay, let's just take two I need to do it now so I'm into brutalism I'm going to make some steel sculptures they're going to be 
based upon natural subjects, but don't expect to recognise them too easily. Uh -huh. um, and, and no, are you I'm going to do the metal work, or are you going to do no. the maquettes, and then someone's going to realise them? Yeah, okay. yeah. Now, man's got to know his limitations. I'm, I'm, I'm neither a welder. Metal work is amazing. Yes, but like, I'm terrifying. Yeah, I mean, pouring bronze is not my forte. <laughs> I know that they're, they're, they're for me. They don't have to, to, to be appreciated nor valued by anyone else. It's sure. like when I wrote Sparkle Jar, I just wrote it. I didn't have a commission from a publisher. I just needed to make something. And at mm -hmm. that point, my mum had died and she, she, she had said to me one day, you know, maybe one day you'll write a proper book because <laughs> I've been writing books about natural history and sure. things. Write a proper book. And I sort of thought, oh, I wonder if I can. Or Do you think she would have liked it? No, my mum was really critical of... She features in it less than your father, quite considerably so. Yeah, I mean, my mum and I had quite a fractious relationship as adults, and, you know, um, and, my, and my father and I maintained a relationship through the most fractious periods of my, you know, developing adulthood. Mm -hmm. But, no, both my parents were super critical of everything that I did. I don't think they were ever satisfied. And, and that, you know, that sounds harsh, and but it was actually quite an important seed because I'm not satisfied and you know and it just keeps me driven you know I always want to do better um, it's like with the photography photography is one of the most disappointing you know <laughs> I can't tell you how much sometimes I hate photography um, and you know but I keep keep at it because I know that if I keep ruthlessly criticizing my work then I will by definition get better and better. I'm never going to get to that point of perfection, obviously, uh -huh. but throughout my life it, the, it should improve. So I'm tremendously excited. I haven't been this excited about anything for a long time. I can barely sleep. <laughs> uh, uh, I've spent the last six months, you know, I haven't, deliberately I haven't over-planned what I'm going to do. Sure. I want it to happen in this three months, but I do have a, a, a vague idea of how I'm going to start. But I've been reading a lot and watching a lot. Um, not about sculpture, actually. Again, you know, it's like when I was writing Sparkle Jar, I didn't read anything that I thought might be influential. Sure. I, I like to sort of shut myself away from any contamination. Because I need... You know, the only reason to make this sculpture is to try and do something new. I'm not interested in replicating anyone's work, ever. Mm -hmm. I have to find a new way, or try and find a new way, of, of exploring that medium to say something unique, or in a, in a unique way. Sure. So I say brutalist, but I'm going to transform, you know, my approach to brutalism, and, and involve other aspects of, um, or other, other bits of other art movements in it to sure. see what sort of chimera I can make out of it. Really. What do you think about? I mean, to sort of almost to bring things full circle, do you think there is a place for art and human-created endeavours that are aesthetic, beautiful, artistic? in helping to move the conservation element forward. I mean, there's always been a close-knit relationship between the explorative scientist and the creative mind, whether it be coming up with theories like Darwin did, or even trying to document them on, on paper to bring back and to make people understand those ideas with you. How can you tell people what you saw mm. if there's not a picture to show it or a photograph to show it? Mm. Or do you think that maybe the next tack of protest it needs to be a more artistic one perhaps for me science is the art of understanding truth and beauty uh -huh. science can be very very beautiful normally when it's at its most simple um, when it's those experiments you think oh, I could have done that on my kitchen table you know and they find out something profound but art is you know transformative 
and no matter what art it is, whether it's language, you know, and, and whether that's prose or poetry or play, whether it's music, I mean, look at the way that music radically and instantaneously connects to us. I can be driving along thinking of something completely different, feeling in a completely different way, and then, you know, I hear a track on a radio and, and it transports me across decades, radically and instantaneously changes my mood, up or down. Mm -hmm. You know, that ability for, for music, I mean, it's so primal within us. And for me, I'm, I'm not an acoustically orientated person. You I'm were a, in a band there once. You were, yeah, right. Yeah, I made a terrible noise. <laughs> uh, Isn't that not the point? No, I wrote the songs. I was, I was massively into Baudelaire and Rambo at the time, so I was writing sort of really <laughs> depressing poetry, so I turned it to lyrics. But, the, um, but for me, I'm, 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 on, I'm on the visual side of things. And, you know, and I look around and I see, you know, unparalleled beauty in, in nature. I see, you know... Accidental beauty or do you think there's no, a hand? No. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, uh, evolution, I don't think there's a, a, another hand, a mm -hmm. metaphysical hand. But, you know, the, the pressure of, you know, sometimes tens, sometimes hundreds, sometimes millions of years of competition to forge something which is as close to perfect. I mean, nothing's perfect because nothing lives forever and ever and ever. But, you know, the dynamic perfection and the harmony uh, and, and the functionality of an intact ecosystem is beyond compare. Yeah. You know, that is, is, is the real greatest beauty in, in nature. And, and our habit of sort of taking things out of those uh, uh, ecosystems and putting them on a pedestal, whether they be dolphins, polar bears or kestrels, sure. um, to worship them is okay. We, in a way, it's, it's like we put them in a glass jar and we separate them from their world and then we admire them aesthetically and I suppose that's what in a way we, we, we do ostensibly with art except that art is a window to invite you back into the out of the jar and back into their world and that's why you know when I go to an art gallery I look at my Rothkos and de Koonings and Barnett Newmans and I, I really like the abstract expressionists you know they communicate with me most intensely and most immediately most poignantly and, and emotionally and they uh, it's, I'm not in an art gallery when I'm standing in front of them you know, I'm there for the first few minutes and then I stand you know this far away you know I don't know 60 centimeters away from a, a Mark Rothko and in a relatively short space of time, I'm transported somewhere completely different. Mm -hmm. And the power of those simple blocks of colour, or, or the music, or whatever type of art, or the words, whatever it is, you know, that connects, I think is an incredibly important tool. It, it, that level of communication goes beyond sometimes banner shaking and, and ranting from a podium. So yeah, I think art, you know, an appreciation of the, the natural world, um, and finding audiences, you know, who are, are not currently receptive to the plight of the natural world, who can respond under the call when, when, when the call comes is, is really important. But then I don't, I'm not going to pretend to you in any way, shape or form that, you know, that this project I'm about to embark on is, um, is that way inclined. This is actually, I've got to say it, right? it's a totally selfish project. I just need some time to rethink what I'm going to do about how I'm campaigning and, and, and trying to change the world. I, I need to process the loss of my father and, and the loss of my dogs. I need to make something that's just purely about me and I like the challenge of doing something which I've never done before. I have no training to do. So I, I like 
being confronted by that difficulty. I don't like contentment. I, you know, I've got to I've got to have something which is challenging always, all the time. And and I, and, I, and ultimately, I'm just like a kid with plasticine. I just like making things. You know, I can't sit there with a ball of plasticine on a desk and not make a T Rex out of it. I've got to I've got to do it. I've been making sea turtles for my little one. <laughs> I don't know why I always thought it'd be a dinosaur one. Um, there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, carbon footprint aside, where would it be? We've just done it. That one? Yeah, definitely. Who, Absolutely who no with? Definite. Was it with me? Or was yeah, it well, I've, I've enjoyed our, you know, our <laughs> conversation. And, um, but this is the place. This is, where I, this is, this is it. You know, and I, I'm, I'm lucky to have travelled to many far-flung parts of the world, and I've put my foot through sand and snow, and it's an, an enormous privilege. And travel does broaden the mind and, and all of that, but home is where the heart is. This is this is it. That, that I, this, I do this walk if I'm at home every day. We, we've cheated today. We're both dogless, so I feel yeah. like we've betrayed. Well, when know? you said you weren't bringing yours, I was like, I shouldn't bring. I, I think mine's just gone back to Somerset. But. So, so it was like a wasted walk, really. Without you know, I don't know. Whatever. No dogs. No good. Um, What's the biggest lesson you have learnt from your many travels? Is the lesson not to? I know. I mean, obviously, we've radically changed the way that we, we travel now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm standing next to my electric, electric, electric car. my electric car, which is the best thing. It's not the answer, but it's a it's a solution. Certainly, in terms of air quality at the moment, you know, yeah. in the city, you know, that's helping our young people in particular who suffer respiratory problems. So, I mean, you know, and then there are other benefits. The batteries are another issue. We all know that. So, yeah. um, and then I do no internal flying. I try to use the rail system. I've been hit really hard by the strikes, but I'm supportive of the strikes. So no complaints there. Uh, and then if we travel overseas, then I, well, I don't use, I don't <laughs> use the word offset. You immediately open yourself to a, yes. a, a, bat- a, a, a necessary and justified, um, you know. Do you think we're going to find some kind of effective and genuinely successful offsetting initiative or do you think it's a foolish way to justify our ridiculous uh, refusal to accept that we're doing bad things to the world no no i know i'm doing bad things to the world i just try and minimize them i mean i'm I'm a vegan i drive an electric car i I live in an insulated house i i do everything i can to reduce my environmental footprint and keep it as positive as possible i'm constantly you know researching i'm open to ideas of how i can do that and as and when they arrive and they're available to me um i i I seize them Mm -hmm. um am am i uh, a paragon of environmentalism no of course i'm not and i don't think anyone can be at this point but again you know if we're moving in the right direction then that has to be seen as positive you know there's 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 no point in brutalizing people who you know are trying to do good particularly if you're not trying particularly hard yourself you know i mean i get a lot of grief from the trolls about my stance against hs2 because they say it's a public transport system how can you not like trains yes and and yeah you are driving around in your car and what do you rather have roads and of course i wouldn't rather have roads and of course i don't want you know i want a sustainable public transport system but people like myself who stick their head above the parapet are bound to elicit those sorts of largely ignorant um, and certainly counterproductive criticisms why don't you leave social media because you're on it quite a lot. Yeah, but I, it's as positive as it is negative. <laughs> you know, I'm able to communicate with a like-minded community of people, and, you know, and vice versa. I learn a lot from 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 them, and, and we communicate effectively. I, I just have to put up with a, you know, the, the hideous side of it as well. And I've I've had to learn to become, you know, really robust on mm-hmm. on that front. Mm. Second question: um, Who is your natural history hero? Well, I've got a number of mentors who you know have really helped me john buckley was a teacher i had at my 
comprehensive school. He's in your book quite substantially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John, just without John. Is he still with us? Yeah, yeah. Still do you do. meet him? Occasionally, yeah. I'm not the most sociable person, but, you know. <laughs> you know but yes, and we correspond, and, uh, you know, and uh, he's still out doing nat- natural histories. Was he the teacher in the classroom when you released adders into the room? He wasn't in that class, actually. That was during a language lesson, but... Um, but he, you know, he was <laughs> approving of the endeavour. <laughs> well, he would have had a wry smile about that, I think, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. But um, it was grass snakes, I think. Sorry, the grass snakes. were in the garden. But the um, anyway, the um, yeah. And then after that, there was another guy called Alec Faulkner. He kind of kept me at sixth form. They were trying to kick me out. I was a punk rocker, and in what had up until that point, well, it was an all boys school still. Actually, it was an all boys school at that point. And then Roy Putman was a uh, my tutor at university, and again, I was really struggling and and they sort of kept me on the academic straight and narrow. So there have been a number of people, uh, you know, Ron Hoblin after that was a, a naturalist who worked for the Forestry Commission in, in the east of England and, and he took me under his wing and showed me remarkable things. Do you see yourself as a teacher or a mentor? No, I, you know, I try to make myself a communicator. Uh, you know, I try to communicate my passion and, and enthusiasm and I try to, you know, communicate a desire to to do things right when it comes to the environment but not actually a a, a teacher I don't have a lesson plan <laughs> if I did it constantly changes the best teachers never had a lesson oh, plan, oh right? okay yeah okay but no I, and, and, I, and the, the other thing is you know for me my life's been a, a lifelong lesson and that's the greatest joy of it I, I constantly get to meet people who know more about the subject mm-hmm. or a part of that subject than I do and they tell me what they know when I ask them, you know, through the purposes of making television. And uh, sometimes they're naturalists, sometimes they're passionate people, and and sometimes they're academics. And I say to them, so what have you found out then? Or what have you seen? And they tell me and I learn, and that is just the greatest joy. I I can understand that. I have a similar thing on a slightly smaller scale. Um, Final question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? compassionate humans <laughs> did they exist yeah did they ever exist um, I think they did if we're looking outside of you know something idealistic like that and and it were just purely you know a sort of vicarious enjoyment thing then the greatest living animal that ever lived uh, for me is t-rex you know I just I've, I've just been absolutely enthralled with that animal since I was well before I was five you know three or four or five Mm -hmm. and i've seen it transform as an organism in my lifetime through the you know paleontological Mm. advances and that's been joyous um i like the fact actually that i'm going to go to my grave and not know what t-rex sounded like what colors it was well you'll meet t-rex in the afterlife wherever that is well i hope so because you know that that would be there's a few answers i'd like to know i think you get to ride them up there do you? Yeah. <laughs> do you? I'm not sure about that. Is that ethical? Uh, they're compassionate T-Rexes, <laughs> and okay, you're a compassionate right, human, yeah. so yes, it is. I mean, I just loved it. If you they said get to ride you back in return, which is less comfortable, no, no, but yeah, it is yeah, fair. By consuming us, I hope. <laughs> um, I suppose that's more of a time machine question, if you had a time machine. I always sort of say, imagine time machines. What would I like to see? I'd like to see, you know, what happened at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be quite interesting, but it would be a trade-off between that and, 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 and meet, meeting a T-Rex. But bringing back from extinction. Do you know what? There, there are these projects running around the world to de-extinct animals, and of course they're fascinating blue-sky science, yep. but you know, I'm more keen on protecting what we've got here now than, than investing enormous amounts to, to bring something back we've already negligently lost. So, you know, we've still got 
big exciting animals if that's what turns you on we've still got rhinos we've still got tigers bison. we've still got, we've got bison in this country bison great you know. they're amazing so can we not look after those i mean that would be my that would be my thought chris thank you very much indeed much okay appreciate. well you're most welcome and that is that a huge thank you to chris for devoting his morning to me Truth be told, I had been desperate to record an interview on my home turf of the New Forest for so long now, so it was a double delight to do it with such good and gracious company. Thank you, Chris. Equal thanks go to, too, to his wonderful assistant, Kate, for helping us set all of this up. Now, it hopefully goes without saying, but I look forward greatly to seeing the fruits of Chris's metalworking labours. Now, for links to everything we touched upon in both parts of this interview, that would be part one and part two, head along to treesacrowd.fm where you will also find a few additional thoughts from me. So with all that said, we are back again on the first Tuesday of April. And as fate would have it, April's guest's natural history hero is none other than Chris Packham himself. But something to do with how much she blushed when she mentioned his name leads me to think that it may not simply be down to his impeccable conservation credentials. But until then, and until spring is well and truly sprung, thank you as always for listening. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.